Welcome to episode 8 of How Public Works. This is a podcast about how government and society interact and where you as a citizen can be informed and find a place where you can engage and transform our society together. I'm your host, Ilmar Simonovskis. Today we are with Sonia Singh, who is involved in emergency management and has experienced working in federal, provincial, regional, and municipal governments in the GTA. She is also currently doing a master's in public safety at Laurier University. She is also an instructor and teaches emergency management provincially. Today we are talking about emergency preparedness in the province and the impact of the pandemic as it applies to municipalities and their role with provincial and regional health departments and to share her thoughts on what we can do as citizens. Ironically, Sonia and I got to know each other during the 2003 blackout as we participated in the Emergency Management Center for over a week. Welcome, Sonia. Hi, Elmar. Thank you so much for inviting me uh, to your podcast. I'm really looking forward to this. Thank you, and thank you for participating. So, Sonia, I knew you when you were in public health. Now you're doing emergency management. Can you tell us what that's about? Yeah, first of all, I got bitten by the emergency management bug when we had SARS and, of course, when we met during the power outage. Um, I found it a very interesting area and I never knew anything about it. So what it is, is um, just making sure that either where you are, even as, as a homeowner to somebody working in local government, is making sure you're prepared for the unexpected. So in my role working for a local municipality, um, I'm responsible for the legislated requirements because as of 2004, the Emergency Management and Civil Protection Act came into power and um, municipalities and ministries are required to do certain things such as have an emergency response plan, train staff to work in emergency operations center, um, do public education and look at the kind of hazards that occur in the area so that they plan appropriately for them. For example, in Ontario or perhaps in my local municipality, I'm not going to plan for tsunamis because we're pretty much landlocked. Um, I'm going to focus on things like flooding and severe summer and winter storms, things that could actually happen. That's what you plan for. And with that, now you found yourself in this role. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, how you, you know, how you came to this? When you describe SARS and, you know, the blackout, those are major events and you were already in your career. But is there a time in your life when you kind of went, hmm, I want to be that person? Well, I, I guess growing up, you kind of think I want to be a superhero and I want to save lives um, do that sort of thing. And that's where I, I started to work in, uh, in um, medical sciences when I went to university. And then I thought, oh, I kind of want to work around people um, and save lives too. And how am I going to do this? So I decided to go into public health. I was a public health inspector. I'm certified to be a public health inspector currently even in Canada. And with that, that's when I was working for York Region Health Services. And then a significant event happened where um, it kind of turned the world around. And that was 9-11. And the education that I had as a public health inspector um, spanned from environmental 
issues, food issues to infectious diseases. So I was brought in to um, teach uh, first responders about anthrax and uh, the potential exposures and how to uh, clean and disinfect. Because at that time, um, we were getting the suspicious uh, uh, white powder packages um, after the fact. So you kind of start working outside of public health and now you're working with first responders and uh, you're seeing how government and organization, uh, government organizations, community partners come together and work to solve problems. And I thought, wow, this is pretty cool. Um, and then of course, SARS happened and here you go again, it's public health and public health then became one of the first responders. Now people were looking to us for the response aspect. And this is what's happening right now with the pandemic also. But now there's more coordination. And here we start coordinating with Red Cross because they had to deliver care packages or packages for quarantining people who were case or contacts of, of people with SARS. So then here we go. Like there's the coordination piece. There's multi organizations working together and we're all working together to keep the public safe. And I thought, wow, this is really cool. And then of course, that same year, we had the power outage and then it was another world, you know? It wasn't um, disease oriented. Now it's like environmentally oriented and power and electricity. So now we're dealing with um, the, like the electrical companies. We're dealing with water and wastewater. So here you think, wow, everything's so interconnected. And you get to learn so much about how things function. I thought this is a pretty cool career. The only thing that I was lacking was the ability to speak the language of first responders. So that's where I decided after that to go and get an education in emergency management. So I went to George Brown College and I got a certificate in emergency management, understood how to run a program uh, municipal program. And then from then on, it was like, okay, how am I going to transition from a public health inspector to an emergency manager? Well, we were all planning for H1N1, or we didn't know it was H1N1. Everybody thought that we were going to get a pandemic. We were like within 40 years, we should have gotten an, a pandemic of sorts. So I ended up working for a large municipality doing pandemic planning. And that's where I trans transitioned from public health into emergency planning and working uh, again during the pandemic. And I was, um, the other part is that then you see all the partners that come through that and that's just the planning process, not even the response. Working with pharmacies and, and, and um, laboratories and long-term care facilities and trying to coordinate how everyone will respond and keep um, everyone uh, not working in silos, but working together to solve problems. I found that so fascinating and so exhilarating that I decided this is the career for me. I want to ask you a question around that because, you know, as you're describing that that journey, you know, and, and you and I having some experience together in, in emergency responses, I, I find it always incredible that, you know, we plan, prepare and you know, have all these processes and, and um, you know, documents that we, we 
train around but when just like you described when an emergency happens you know you can't you can't plan for whatever's going to happen you have to just prepare for a response so how does that how does that energize you what is it about you know the unknown that that drives you in this business or or that um you know that you really feel that you can contribute in you know that whole notion of wow something just happened now we got to deal with it well it goes back again to wanting to save lives I think that's what it is. It's like, do anything you can to get things to function. Um, I happen to work well in stressful situations. I'm one of those people. I'm a doer. So just, you know, you kind of see the problem and focus on it and try to solve it. The great thing about uh, this field and when an emergency happens, and I'm not saying great thing is like, great, it's an emergency, but what you see is the best of people coming out more than anything else. I mean, forget about the, our, our neighbors from the South, but uh, in terms of uh, during SARS even, there was, I mean, I could see how staff started to, we got to know people that we never met before, like Ilmar. The fact that I got to know you, I would never be working with you in any other context. True. And yet here I am. And so now, we have those connections. I'll be honest though, we make all those plans. However, when the time comes, what really actually survives people, what really people use are the relationships that are mm. built prior to. I don't, nobody, and I, I don't care what anybody says, nobody picks up a book and reads their response plan back to back. They don't have the time. They are, by that time, we have to practice. We have to understand roles and responsibilities. And we build those partnerships. So I could pick up the phone and say, hey, Yilmar, um, I need you to like, you know, can you guide me or can you give me this? And like, I remember during the, um, the power outage, there was a situation where there was going to be water loss um, in one of the communities. And we all put our heads together and tried to figure out how can we make sure one of the hospitals didn't run out of water? You know, what can yes. we do to mitigate? And it was like different agencies working together. And I thought, this is really cool. This is how things should be functioning and working. It was a coordinated effort. And that's what for me is the, the, the thing that keeps me going, the thing that keeps me energized. And you and I have also been involved in, in uh, well, I've, I've attended some of your training sessions over the years as well. So this this whole um, sphere of emergency management, a lot of it is that rehearsal and the training and the lingo, you know, the things that you've described, you know, learning how to communicate with each other consistently. So you've developed a number of programs over the years. How do you find that? How um, What's the response when people are, you know, trained around emergency management when it's like, yeah, well, you know, that'll never happen or, you know, we'll deal with it when it comes. How, how is, do you find people really engage in it or, or what's your feeling about training? I think that it all depends on the trainer. And of course, cause I've had people come in and it's a, uh, you know, voluntold basically to come and get emergency management training because people are busy. Um, we are, lean organizations government isn't like fully staffed so people are double hatting they're doing many things so for them to dedicate you know a few hours to training you want to make sure that they see the value in it 
that it can yes. be applicable to the things that they're doing in their daily work, that you're energized. Like, I mean, I don't know if you could tell how I'm speaking to you if I am bored about my job, but I, I, I love what I do and I value it. And I think it's something that, you know, by the end of it, I'm always so relieved and happy because people who start off saying I was told to be here and, you know, I'm really busy, come up to me and they want to know what other training they could have and they get energized. And to me, that is just, it's, that's the benefit. It makes me feel so good when I leave a training session that people actually see the application. Now, I don't think we're going to have to convince people to take training. What do you think? <laughs> I would agree. What about the community? You know, the, the community in itself, and we've, you know, we've been the province and and local governments have been very active in the last i would say what 20 years with personal emergency preparedness training and booklets and you know the go bags these ideas can you share some insights around you know the value of having your average person really appreciate you know that the risks exist and you know i remember during the blackout having this 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 um analogy around what we've created as as society you know you have engineers in the background uh, treating sewage treating water building roads build you know creating power plants and all this to create what we consider normal life you know, all that stopped on, on in 2003 and it was literally the sense that you know the engineering fraternity are pushing this fulcrum this this lever down to elevate, you know, what society looks like when it's functioning at the normal level. And that lever basically fell apart that night. Um, and, and you know, a lot of people didn't know what to do. And fortunately, it was the summertime, you know, it wasn't uh, freezing conditions. So what does that mean for communities when you talk about training and educating and just informing the general public around being prepared? Well, first of all, being prepared is part of our life. At the end of the day, we buy insurance. Why do we buy insurance? Because we want to be prepared, right? Mm, yeah. That's exactly it. We buy extra food sometimes. Why? Because we don't want to run out of food, right? right. We right. prepare escape routes for our homes, for fire. We buy fire um, extinguishers. We buy all of these things because we're preparing for something that may not happen, right. but we want to be prepared. So everything that we do in our life, even, for example, uh we prepare for alternative routes. If we have a traffic uh, jam, we go this way. It's something that we do, you know, just because we know it, but it's all about preparing. And I think it's part of our life. The only thing is that what we're asking the, uh, asking the public to do is to put together a little bit more effort into it. So for example, when we had the power outage, people didn't know how to communicate. Cell phones were down. Why? Yes because people, everybody was calling each other. So one of the key things is to figure out a communication plan. How are you going to communicate with your loved ones if something like this happens again, right? right? Yeah. Um, at the end of the day, we tell people to have an out of province or out of area contact because when you're using a cell phone, you know, the towers within the area go pinging and are used. But if you use some, uh, something that has a tower 50 miles away, there may be a little bit, it might be a little bit more easier to reach right. that person. So for example, I tell my dad, listen, anything happens, call my aunt in Vancouver. 
Right. You know, if you can't get in touch with me, I will call her and she will relay a message and let me know that you're okay. A case in point is during the ice storm in 2013, there was a lady who came to one of the reception centers in our local municipality. And uh, she came, she lived by herself. She -hmm. came because of course she had no power and she was staying at the reception center for five days and our staff took care of her. But her family in another municipality was looking for her, had no clue how to connect with her. No way of knowing how, where or how, or if she's doing well, nothing. So this is the things that people have to do is have that conversation. It may be silly and, you know, kids may go, oh, please, you know, but just even if they have that little idea in their head that they will know how to connect with somebody, text messaging, far more easier to do, you know, text messages go by faster. It's important to be able to know how to connect and, and I guess, and to have enough to sustain your, 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 your life for two, three days in case people can't get to, I guess, like you say, the storms, ice storms in particular, where traffic and road passage may be difficult, right? And the other thing is we want people to be prepared because do we want uh, our emergency services to be inundated when they're trying to get the city up and running so people can get back to work, so people Mm. could get their services rather than, oh, sorry, I don't have enough water or, you know, um, Mm -hmm. I, I, I didn't prepare. So now please take care of me. Yes, we'll be there for our community, but... We want to focus all our energy in dealing with the emergency itself, which means clearing the roads in an ice storm, right? Yes. Making sure that we can get those roads cleared so our emergency vehicles can get through so that if there is a 911 call, they're able to get there and save lives. Um, it's important for people to be self-sufficient. And we say 72 hours because it gives people, it gives emergency services in the city the time to understand what has happened and work out a plan to get the city up and running. And, you know, when you look at both the community's response, because I can only imagine when there is, say, a local crisis, whether it's a flood or a, an ice storm, community wants to know what's going on. So you're now activating multiple channels of communication. And really, at the end of the day, I think my experience in emergency response has always been that that vital communication, you know, family communication. Okay, once that's out of the way and you know where everybody is, then you can focus your energy on the, you know, on the municipal requirements and, and your role in EMS or in emergency services or in the EOC, you know, the emergency operations center. That communication is, it can be very hectic at times. I remember you and I, when we were both dealing with the 2003 blackout, you know, the first 8, 10, 12 hours was an incredible amount of information moving around and, and, and changing information on almost on a, on a minute by minute basis. How do you manage that journey? What does it look like to you? What's your experience being, you know, that initial crisis and how you sort of bring it down to a normal, whatever that normal might be as you deal with the response and the recovery? So lessons learned from doing exercises and, and preparing is we need to have things that are ready to go out immediately. The public needs to know. They even need to know that you're working on it. Even if you don't have information, you're working on it. And this is where you could get information. 
That's right. the key. It's to open up those communication channels immediately. And again, considering the, um, the community that you live in, the type of languages that are out there, different languages that are, you have to make sure that you have all those things ready to go. So during the ice storm, and this is one of the, the things that I'm proud of, is that we had a communication plan and we had an ice storm press release already done. Because again, part of an emergency management program is to assess the kind of risks that happen in a community. An ice storm was one of them. So we decide uh, floods are other ones. So we have those boilerplates, they're called. And they're just templates. So we just fill in the blanks and we provide information. And we had information out within a half an hour of us, you know, um, realizing that the ice storm had caused a lot of damage and and we needed to provide the public with information. So it's that's the preparedness part, right? Communication in any emergency. And I could say that there will be a lot said about communication for COVID also. Mm-hmm. Um, vital, absolutely vital. Getting that message across to people in multiple languages. I, I think in terms of emergency management, that's the key. Maybe just a little bit more on the the network and the process with re- emergency response. You know, there's, you know, there's like the municipal level of response, the regional government where there's two tier governments and the province and the federal, the, the federal government. Uh, so the responsibility of calling an emergency, how that process unfolds, just maybe just help the public sure. understand a little bit more about what happens behind the scenes when, you know, how emergencies declared and what that results in and what the community can feel comfortable is happening behind, you know, behind the scenes. So emergencies, they always start at the individual level. So it always starts at the ground level with the individual, with the person, right? Mm -hmm. Then it goes up to the local government and if it's regional government and provincial and federal. So things escalate. And the key here is resources and support, right? So if, let's just say, we take an emergency at the base level, um, uh, we could talk about a home fire, okay? Home fire, it's an individual thing. It's an emergency for that family. However, if that home fire spreads to the block, right? right. Or even the, um, a, a, like an area that has more than, you know, 15, 20 houses, it could potentially impact the community where then it would be a municipal. Now, if that fire, let's say, is a wildfire and it's spreading across like we see in BC or, you know, in, in, in California or what have you, then it becomes something that could be a provincial emergency, right? And so on and so forth. The key here is resources. So, for example, um, there, are, there is criteria that the province has that helps to guide municipalities and uh, regional governments in declaring an emergency. Now, these, um, the criteria could be, you know, just needing to have that support from uh, the province or maybe potentially <laughs> needing uh, military supports. Um, mm-hmm. it, it, could, it could come from municipality or as in with COVID, it actually came from the province because it's widespread, there is no site. You know, there's not one site that's impacted. It's the entire province. It's the entire country. 
So right. this is where, you know, declarations of emergency can happen at the provincial level and it would apply throughout. Um, there is declarations of emergencies that could uh, apply just to a local area. And again, mm -hmm. it's resources. If they need the support of the province, they declare an emergency. If, for example, they need special powers, then they declare an emergency. But there is like a whole slew, and I'm not going to go into the criteria, mm -hmm. but there is criteria that exists and people could look it up. The criteria for de declaring an emergency. Now, the mayor can declare an emergency, right? Right. Um, and at the end of the day, the when the emergency is terminated, it could be like council or the mayor again. So again, it, I could tell you this during uh, the um, ice storm in 2013, certain municipalities declared emergencies, certain municipalities didn't. If they had enough resources and they were able to handle things at the local level, they kept it at the local level. Okay. Right. Um, and at that time, so th there's also something that existed way back when declaring an emergency for a natural disaster would um, trigger the uh, provincial government to pr provide funding um, to municipalities and to residents. Um, and it was like a uh, disaster recovery uh, fund. Okay. Now uh, it has changed as of 2016. Uh, emergency does not have to be declared in order for, so individuals, if there is a flood in a local municipality that impacted an area, if the local municipality didn't declare an emergency, a residence can still apply for funding or disaster relief based on um, the flood itself. Mind you, it's only limited to a natural disaster. At the same time, it's funding that could support people in building back. So that's treading on an interesting conversation that goes far beyond emergency management. You know, you know, you're describing flooding being or weather events being a major risk in in our area in the province, and how, yeah, there's there's a crisis of the emergency event, the the flooding, the the heavy rains, whatever it may be, um, but then there's also layers of risk and vulnerability you know the municipality if there's a sewage bypass or backup in a basement so yeah it, it's it's really quite something that uh, you know after the event whatever that event might be that if we call it the post-event recovery can be far more effort and an investment than just responding to the image the initial crisis right i mean i guess initially you're trying to secure and keep everything safe and then figure out how to get back to whatever the new normal is. Well, and the other thing is, is that being prepared and being able to recover quickly means mm -hmm. saving money. You know, at the end of the day, if you invest in the preparedness aspect, you are going to reap the benefits and recovery, right? If you're not prepared, it'll take longer to recover at the end of the day. And recovery is usually takes much longer than the actual event itself. So for example, the ice storm, the ice storm was just like, you know, a few hours, but it caused a week long power outage in some areas and then years and decades of tree loss. Yes. You know, those are all impacts. They're cascading impacts. Even look at COVID. I don't know how long it's going to take for us to recover from this mentally, socially, economically. It's going to be a while. 
Well, and let's talk about COVID a bit because you also have that public health perspective, and I'm sure you're you're watching what's been transpiring over the last year, in particular since March. What's your um, you know what's your sort of thirty thousand foot perspective of of the whole COVID uh, you know cause and response? So how do you feel about this this journey that we're on right now from a from a public health and emergency management perspective? I'll be honest, uh, never in my life did I ever think something like this would happen. I mean, we prepared for the worst with H1N1, Mm. you know, like, or pandemic planning. We prepared, we thought like, you know, things would fall apart. Um, But it still had a vaccine, like, you know, and we knew that it would take six months to get a vaccine, like it was a known agent. Mm. Here we are with a new um infectious disease well somewhat's new it's still a coronavirus but at the same time we don't have the vaccine to look at in six months you know like it's 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 out there um so from a public health standpoint uh and you know ilmar it's so hard to say because you know we thought we were doing pretty well in the summertime and when anyone said you know, we're going to have a second wave. I thought, you know, maybe we won't. Maybe mm. this won't happen. And now that we're seeing the numbers coming, and it's astounding that we're seeing a rise in numbers. So, yeah, we're into a second wave. We're going to get into a second wave. And if we don't smarten up, you know, this could yeah. be a prolonged second wave or even worse, as we're seeing in, like, you know, Europe and the Middle East. Yes. Yeah. And it, there was um, a recent announcement too, with with a resignation in in the uh, in the leadership for for the COVID response for the, for the federal COVID response recently. So, due to what's been identified as sort of stress overwork, so I'm assuming a huge impact. You know, never mind locally with you know local governments, but with the health units and the health system. What do you see from your side on? on you know the sustainability of of this of this current normal I, I won't call it the new normal yet but at least the current normal and and you know where do you think it's going so again with covid it's a public health emergency so the public health units this is their response mm. communities municipalities we support that so however we're supporting it is in the communication it's in uh, advocating for changes so that we protect our community. Um, so again, in, in terms of, I know from my colleagues in public health, they are overworked. The hospitals, the, the public health units, they are overworked. Um, they're hiring lots of people. And I can't see this honestly ending anytime soon and what will make it even worse and compound this is cold and flu so not only will they be dealing with we will be dealing with covid we're going to be dealing with cold and flu Mm. and at the end of the day you know somebody having a cough with a cold or even allergies right yes um can can ring some bells and people become afraid Um, I know that they're trying to uh, increase testing. So that's a good thing. The more testing we get, the more easier it is for people to get tested, perhaps more peace of mind. Um, You know, one of the things that I said that I was going to say at the end of this, but maybe repeating it twice won't be a bad thing, is get a flu shot. 
get a flu shot. Even if the flu shot isn't as effective and you know people say it sometimes it isn't the right shot or right combination, it still will lessen the effects of the flu. You do not want to get the flu and COVID at the same time. It's just not right. And you're protecting the immunocompromised, the people who can't get the flu shot for some reason or not. So, I mean, if we're trying to do our civic duty, get the flu shot. You know, that's one of the things, at least that will help us in uh, the next few months. And it's it's a question, it's a topic that's having a lot of conversation right now, right? And every day we hear different information on, you know, what's happening from public health perspectives and, and um, you know, provincial and federal contributions and programs to try to keep things going. And the economic side of this obviously will, you know, will unfold as it, as it will, depending on circumstance and programs and whatever the um, federal and provincial governments do. But then from a community perspective, and, you know, I, I like that, call to action about protecting yourself, you know, do what you can to protect what we know, and then we'll deal with the rest. It's, it's interesting too, though, because you, you have a very close relationship with, you know, with emergency management services, like, um, you know, I know at the regional level, that's more of a regional responsibility, but say fire, as an example, is a local responsibility. Um, mm-hmm. You know, regionally, there's a police departments, and that that response too. I mean, your role can shift from lead to support to you know to information source to maybe we don't even need your your assistance in this particular crisis. Mm-hmm. So, how do you find your journey as it's in, unfolded over your career and as you've gained more information? I mean, obviously that makes you more more valuable. How do you? leverage that talent and communicate it and what would you suggest say to people that are either in this career or looking to this career as a future step well okay um so (laughs) that's a that's a a big question there omar um (laughs) sorry let me think about this for a little while (laughs) um so with respect to my career um i think it's important emergency management isn't something you go into from high school i think for me what has benefited me is the fact that i had the public health background that just Mm -hmm. enhances the emergency management side of it okay Mm -hmm. um you need to have something else so you see a lot of people with policing ems like emergency medical services uh fire Um, public health, you'll find people with different backgrounds coming in and doing emergency management. And I think those are the ones who um, can utilize their skill sets in a different way and enhance the whole emergency management part of it. What would you what would you offer to young professionals who are exploring different fields and, and, you know, where, where they could focus in on to get into emergency management? Like what, you know, what are the important aspects of the field that they can consider? And, you, you know, you talk about those driving needs when you're young and what makes you, you know, realize, hey, this is what I want to be when I grow up. But, you know, there's a lot of opportunity and there's a lot of diversity in, in, our, in our career paths compared to, say, when you and I started out in, on, in our careers. Yeah. 
So, so yeah, what would a young aspiring public servant or even a community member who's looking to get into a different career think about as far as moving forward into a new direction in, in emergency management or emergency preparedness? Well, I think it's important to get the education behind you. Remember I told you, I mean, I could have moved into emergency management without going to um, George Brown, without learning more about the area, um, uh, learning from the professionals that are in the field, speaking that language. I think it's important to uh, gain education. Um, that's the foundation of what you will build your career on, right? And, and constantly, I'm constantly learning. I'm constantly taking courses. This field, there's so many different aspects of it that um, there are emergency managers in environmental. There's emergency managers in uh, public health and um, in the private sector, airports, um, the like consumers gas, like gas, electrical. There are emergency planners in all um organizations even when you look at social services there's emergency planners for red cross you know there are things like that that it is an amazing career but you need to have one education in it two i think you should have it, it should almost be like your second career that you move into because it's only enhanced by the knowledge like an engineer who wants to be an emergency manager could add so much more value rather than just, like I said, going straight from high school to be an emergency manager. There's no, there's no foundation to base it on. It's, it's, um, it, I think it's a great second sort of move career. And that's what it was for me. I just kind of, you know, transitioned into it. Um, and I find that I am uh, more valuable because of that. Now, in the municipality that I work in, my public health background is, is so valuable because now I could speak to the infection control practices when we're cleaning and disinfecting and uh, having staff come back to work, right? Like, I mean, that is valuable. So here you are, and especially with public health being inundated, it's good to have somebody who has that expertise. You know the language and you can support the... Uh the objectives and the and the advice, right? The, the programs that they're offering up. Plus I have friends <laughs> who are in public <laughs> health. So I can get information and support and I've already built those bridges and, you know, uh, connections. So it's it all helps to enhance your role in emergency management. Omar, I can't tell you how happy I am in the field. I don't, again, you, it's, it's, a, it's something that people look at and say, wow, how could you be so energized when things are going so bad? But I'm the person you want to be energized during this time because this is, this is what I do. It's, it's, it's what I want to do. It's, it's me being my own superhero. So with your energy and, and everything happening in the world right now, do you have a call to action that you want to share with the community that would you know, see if people can actually respond to this crisis and provide whatever call to action that would uh, motivate people. So, you know, it's funny, uh, thinking about it is now everybody's an expert in public health because they could read, you know, what's out there. Um, so that's one thing that I'm just hoping people do is go to the proper public health sites. Okay, listen to public health, 
prevention of federal guidelines. You know, we want this to end. We do want this to end. But if people start grabbing information from all different sources, and I'll be honest, I don't listen to the news anymore. If I want to find out anything, I am going on the public health websites for my area, the provincial website, the federal website, and keeping track of the news in terms of from our uh, our leadership and our experts uh, in the field. Uh, going back to your workplace, I know a lot of places are eager to have people back, even though that we're going into the second wave. And um, I have to say, I'm really pleased that they decreased the um, gatherings to 10 indoors and 25 outdoors, because we're going into you know, Thanksgiving, Halloween, Christmas, we need to, we need this to end, you know, and like, I'm shocked, because I think I checked the numbers. In Ontario, we had 400 new cases just yesterday. Right? And Canada 863. So you're thinking, what is going on? Why are we doing this to ourselves? So um, do what you can to listen to public health guidelines. And if you're going back to work, Again, consider disinfecting your workspace. You haven't been there in a while. Keep it going. Don't assume that no one sat in your desk and didn't use your computer. Just every time you go in, you disinfect everything. That's the key. I, I, I'm always like when I go into the office, I make sure that that's what I do. Um, I wear my mask. I, I make sure I, I, I adhere to public health guidelines because I want this to end. And like I said before, I'm going to repeat this. Get your flu shot when you can. If you can get your flu shot. Well, you know, and these are good. These are good public um, messages for sure. And and at the end of the day, we do need to get through this together. I mean, this is not going to solve itself, and we all have to do our part. And with that, any any final words, Sonia? Anything that you want to share? Um, I mean, I've really enjoyed this conversation, and I know that there's a lot of real valuable information that you're providing to the community. So, if you have any last words, uh, I think one of the things that stand out for me is that this situation has caused a lot of people to be isolated. So I would just like people to also remember about your health and well-being, uh, mental health and well-being. Um, there are lots of resources out there for people. Uh, the other part is that there are people who are isolated and you don't have to go and see them, you know, be face to face with them in order to interact with them. A phone call. We have FaceTime, we have so many different technologies, which is another issue all to itself. If we had another power outage, I don't even know how we're going to handle it. But again, we are resilient people. Uh, we will make it through it. Uh, if people plan and they prepare and make sure they have a communication plan, it won't even matter. And that's the other thing is being prepared takes the stress out of a very stressful situation when an emergency happens. If you could say, I know what I'm going to do in a stressful situation, then you're not going to be freaked out. You're not going to have that panic attack. You'll know what to do. So that's another thing. It's another reason why you should be prepared. There's lots of resources online, any community. There's tons of resources provincially, uh, federally on emergency preparedness. Check it out. Check out your local municipality's emergency plan. Um, 
find out how your municipality will communicate with you. I know that we use a lot of mobile signs, so pay attention to them, right? There's tons of stuff that, are, you know, we have signs at our fire halls that change. We use radio and, um, you know, there are things like that that exist and maybe you should be aware uh, of it. And um, again, it's, it's all about taking care of each other. Like you said, we are all in this together and we will get through it together. Very nice. Sonia, thank you so much for this interview. I really appreciate the time you spent with me and I want to wish you all the best in moving forward and hoping we can resolve this issue soon. Yes. Thanks so much, Ilmar.